last week was unique. But half of you people thought I forgot my Bible reading, and I, you know, preached a third of my message before we even opened the Bible. That was unique for effect, but now we're going to be back to ordinary programming. So I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word as we resume our look at the prophecy of Joel, reading in the second chapter, verses 18 through 27. So Joel chapter eight, chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. The, I want to make this note real quick. In verse 18, in the version we are reading, it has past tense. Then the Lord became past tense. Some of your versions, a couple of them, a couple of really good ones, have future tense. That's because the Hebrew is imperfect, and it's from, from the context you, you can't, there's nothing lexically that tells you if it's past or future. And so the translators had to make a determination of what's the reference point here. So the King James, which is, which is after 400 years, still a heavy hitter. It, it, it looks at this as a future thing. Whereas the ESV that we're reading and several other translations see this as God responding to something that had happened. So it's past tense. Either way, the word of God is inerrant, infallible, and our rule for faith and life. And even as it is in my estimation, past tense, nonetheless, even the past tenses of scripture offer future tense hope. Okay? So, we're reading verses 18 through 27. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and 
there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you now in gratitude, thankful that you are not a God who forgets and casts off forever. You are a God who remembers your covenant and shows mercy to your people. We ask, O Lord, that in these few moments of reflection on your word, that you would appear as you are, which is wondrous and great, and that we in our various trials and troubles would be seen in light of your great compassion to us. We ask that you would be with us now, for Christ's sake, amen. All right, well, last week, the last two weeks really, we've seen how judgment begins at the household of God. Okay, This is a pattern throughout all of Scripture. The Lord does indeed punish his people for their sins. We are told throughout Scripture to not chafe under the discipline of God. And have you ever wondered, what does it look like when the Lord disciplines me? I mean, the New Testament tells us regularly that the Lord disciplines those he loves. What does it look like for the Lord to discipline you? What do you think it looks like? Well, it's, it's the various troubles that come into our life. That all of the sin in this world has effects. The, the troubles and heartache that are in the world are pictures of the coming wrath of God against sin. And so this world view was what filled and saturated the mind of Joel. And so in chapter 1, he recalls this horrific locust swarm that had come, that had devastated the country economically, culturally, socially, even religiously. Catastrophic effects. And, and he bears, he brings it to mind. He wants it to be relived and vivid in the memory of the people because then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, or yeah, 17, he reminds the people, or he alludes to this locust storm in the form of another, even greater coming catastrophe. Every trouble. Every trial, every hardship that comes upon the world is a foretaste of the coming wrath of God against sin. Everyone. And so, as Martin Luther said, the chief duty of the Christian is to live a life of continual repentance. Because sin is not just the few actions I do that I can think about. Sin oozes from my pores because my nature is corrupt. Even my best actions are contaminated 
And so this is why the prophet does not have to give the people an acute list of sins for which they are being punished. Sin is just there. And even when I worship, my mind is not fully satisfied. My affections are not focused. And it goes on and on. The good I do is not as good as it should. I'm continually not doing the things I should and doing the things I shouldn't. And even when I'm doing what I should, there's a mixture of selfish motive or whatever involved. We indeed are a desperate lot. And so the righteous wrath of God against sin comes. And that leads us up to the call to repentance. At the end of verse 11, 10 and 11, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 1, the prophet has called the people to national repentance. And he's issued out 17 imperatives. Do this, do this, do this. Before he himself, in the last two verses of chapter 1, take up his own prayer of repentance calling out and crying out to the Lord in prayer. Then in chapter 2, what we read last week, after announcing this pending greater judgment, of which that locust swarm was just a picture, judgment comes. Repent. He again calls the people to repent. Now chapter 1 looked at a historic event. A locust swarm invaded and destroyed the country. The first part of chapter 2 then, in a sense, idealizes that event to point to a great future coming judgment. Here now, he's looking back at what did God do in response to their actions at the end of this literal judgment that had happened in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, it's past tense. Chapter 2 is looking forward to the future. Chapter 2, 1 through 17, what we looked at last week, is looking to the future. This part of chapter 2 is looking back at the devastation of chapter 1. And then what we're going to see starting next week is he's looking forward to addressing what's going to happen in the future again. So there's like this prophetic hip, uh, uh, hopscotching back and forth a couple times. And brothers and sisters, this is what makes the prophetic books so difficult. One of the challenging things about the prophets is not just their manner of communication with us. It's God's manner of communication with them. You see, we don't really understand. I don't think we really appreciate the unique nature of Moses in the Old Testament. He's not just another guy. We're so egalitarian in our culture that we think everybody is just equally significant. Uh, no, Moses is special. And God says as much. Um, in fact, a bunch of people in Numbers 12 are sitting there going, yeah, we're all priesthood of believers. We're all equal. We're all the Lord's priests and holy and all that jazz. So Moses, Aaron, who do you think you are? thinking you're above us the lord shows up and the lord says if there is a prophet among you 
I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so my servant Moses. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the very form of God and said, who are you? And then he goes into why, who do they think they were to stand up here? Okay, the implication here is God speaks in riddles to the prophets, except for Moses. Which is why, messianically, when Moses says at the end of his life, after me, the Lord will raise up another prophet like me, he's not referring to Joshua, he's not referring to Elijah, he's not referring to Isaiah, he's referring to a prophet who will uniquely see the very form of God and reveal the will of God straight-faced, without visions of, that are always sort of esoteric and kind of, the, that's why these oracles just have this, surreal quality to them because the Lord is speaking in these abstract pictures but to Moses he spoke face to face not so Joel and so in the prophets you have these fuzzy pictures that the apostle Peter in his first epistle tells us that they studied they earnestly sought to understand the meaning of what they were saying about this future grace that is coming. And the idea is that the prophets themselves didn't fully understand the revelation that God had given to them because it was meant to be understood in the Messianic age, which we're going to get to next week. We're going to talk about it next week. So the prophets, not only are they speaking in terms of abstract pictures, but there's also this thing called perspectival telescoping, which is in the prophets, oftentimes, things that are separated by incredible gulfs of time appear to be sequential, non-unbroken events as one event. And the, the closest analogy that we've been able to come up with, and, and many ministers and commentators will do it, will listen, is, is to how things look over distance, specifically if you're looking at a mountain range. You can go look at the front range of a mountain, and it's not always true that the thing in the front is the tallest. Sometimes you look across and everything looks equally heighted, but it only looks equally heighted because the things that are really, really tall are far in the back, and the things that are shorter are up front, but from your vantage point, everything looks the same height. You don't see the true height of some of these things, nor do you see the vast valleys that exist in between the peaks. So too it is when the prophets are given these oracles. You don't see the vast gulfs of time. And so... What the Lord is doing in this book is showing us that as even as he responds to the historical crisis of chapter 1, which itself is a picture of something horrific coming in the future for all who uh, persist in rebellion, so too this part of chapter 2 is a picture of how his mercy extends to his people, even as the rest is going to show how God responds in the future to those who either persist or repent 
in the light of this coming great judgment. And so, Joel 2, 18 to 27, simply records God's response to their lamentation as a result of this horrific, catastrophic crisis that they had encountered. The Lord's response to their lamentation. Verse 18 is the turning point of the book. Before verse 18, everything is doom and gloom. Now in verse 18, we turn, and then starting with verse 19, through the rest of the book, it's the Lord talking. So before that, it's the prophets. After verse 19, or starting with verse 19, it's the prophets. But what I want to look at mostly today is this hinge verse. Verse 18 itself, because the rest of this section records what it looks like for verse 18 to happen. The first thing I want you to see about verse 18 is the word then. Then. This is a shorthand thing for a great important truth. A great truth that people who are feeling devastated, who are feeling shell-shocked, who are feeling cast aside need to hear. And it is this. God responds. You do not serve a God who is emotionally, relationally, distanced, cut off, cold, far removed, unmoving towards you. Then. The then refers to God's response to the actions of his people in coming forward in repentance. The people pray, and the Lord responds. Brothers and sisters, the Lord responds to the prayers of his people. You have a personal God. He's not an impersonal deity. He's personal. He's relational. And when you, his child, call out to him, he hears. And he is not immoved. His heart his affections are roused for you because he cares for you. Okay? One of the cries of the psalmist is how long will we be cast off? And the other one is will you be angry forever? And the answer for, for God's people God is the God of compassion for his people. And so no matter what circumstance you're in, no matter how hopeless it may seem, it doesn't matter how bleak things may look, how certainly it appears that the executioner's axe is poised over your head. 
he hates his people. And here's the thing about coming to the Lord that they do at the end of chapter 1. Do you think they came to him in their fullness? That they were overjoyed, that their hearts were brimming, and life is just, uh, and they just come and just start just effervescently jumping around, just dancing, happy clappy? No. What They came to him in their emptiness, in their brokenness. Their hearts probably weren't particularly warm and fuzzy for Jesus. But he knew they were lonely. And it's when, when you get down to bedrock, and all the happy thoughts are gone, and all you have left is to throw yourself at the mercy of God. That's when God deals with you. I'm reminded, I think, I think that the prophet Habakkuk says it most beautifully. You, you, you probably know his book. It's short. We'll, we'll look at it sometime while going. He, like many of us, is, is angry at all the sin he sees around him. Oh, Lord, these people are wicked. Judge them. And the Lord says, I will. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And then he's like, what? Yeah, yeah, I said we're wicked, but they're, more, they're, they're way worse than we are. How can those people... Judge us. And God says what he's going to do. And Habakkuk responds in his third chapter with this. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. In other words, physically weak because of the pain. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. In other words, the trouble that Israel is about to experience hasn't even happened yet. But the vindication of Israel is promised. He's going to quietly wait. And he says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's coming to God in your weakness, in your emptiness. And it's what the people did. And God, through responses, says that God is the God who loves his people and cares for their hurts and their troubles. So the word then is a big word. It sums up the responsiveness of God 
to the repentance of his people because of his love for those people. But second, this passage reveals that God became jealous for his land. Jealous for his land. Exodus 34, 14 is a verse that a lot of people wish they could scrub out of their Bible. But it's there. Praise God it's there. Exodus 34, 14, you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. To be jealous means to be roused to zealous defense of something. Okay, for the preservation of of either something dignity or honor or the sanctity of some sort of relationship. We oftentimes use the word in a in a in a, in a trite, uh, you know, fickle or, or just just petty sense, insecure. No, God is roused to jealousy to preserve the integrity, the honor, the sanctity of his name, his holiness, his people, and his land. The land. What indeed is we talking about here? Well, this is Old Testament type and shadow. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, I should say, the land is integral. In fact, you could argue that the land is almost more important than the people. Which is why if the people don't fulfill the terms of the covenant, he says the land will vomit you out. And in fact, the years of the exile are counted according to the years of Sabbath rest that the land didn't receive. In other words, not a single king, not David, not Josiah, nobody gave the land the Sabbath rests that were prescribed in the scriptures. Nobody. And yet some of them are still called good kings. Huh. Anyway. The land is so sacred in the pages of scripture because it itself is a type, a picture of heaven. Which is why in in terms of type and shadow, eternal life looks like always having a living descendant in the land. This is why it was so essential and seen as such a curse to not have a descendant. It was a picture of eternal life in God's blessed place, the land. And what we're told in Revelation is that there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and a new temple and all this stuff. And it comes down in these pictures because God is now with us and Eden has now spread throughout the world. But he is jealous for his place. And it has become desecrated. And among the nations of the world, a byword, a reproach. What kind? <laughs> They're puny gods. That's how they thought back then. If, if your nation was prosperous, it's because your God was great. If your nation was going down the tubes, it was because your deity was lousy. If we won a battle against you, it's because our deity beat your deity. Or, or maybe that your deity betrayed you and sold you over to us. This is what they try to do with Balaam. 
But the idea here is that because of what had happened, the nations around were, were heaping scorn and derision on the people. God has abandoned them. His place lies desecrated and defiled and empty, and the people are nothing. What kind of a weakling God is this? I say no more will it be a reproach. He is zealous to vindicate his name and preserve the integrity and honor of his people. Third, it says the Lord had pity on his people. Pity means simply moved to compassion. Okay? And his people, we're going to look at this in Sunday school in a couple weeks. Weeks. This is essential covenant language because the covenant is essentially, I will be your God and you will be my people. There is a relationship. The closest thing we can liken it to is marriage. There is a marriage, a blood relationship exists between you and God. The blood of the covenant. And the blood of the covenant is Jesus. The lamb that was slain, his blood guarantees an eternal covenant of grace. And you are his people, and he is your God, and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And though you may feel for a season that he is angry and is far removed, nonetheless, he has not forgotten you, and he will not leave you. And abandon you. He's bound to you. And he cherishes you above all things. And so, because he's moved to pity and jealous, that is zealous to defend the integrity of his relationship with you, the sanctity of his promises, the glory of his name, he's moved to act. And so beginning in verse 19, then we see what does it look like for these things to be? In people, what we see before our very eyes is the complete restoration of all things. I think verse 25 sums it up when it says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So in other words, he's not just talking about, okay, you lost some vines, I'm going to give you some more vines. Oh, the years, not just that ordinarily, given a natural occurrence, it would take years for these things to grow back and all that stuff. He's referring to more than just that. He's talking about the heartache, the hardship. The stress, the trauma, the misery of this catastrophic event that has drained the life from you. I will get you back. I will pay it back in spades. If it's true that all of the suffering we experience is an expression of wrath against sin... God is moved to restore all things. Then the troubles you face, cast them before Jesus. Cast them before him. 
and God promises to restore you. He won't necessarily take away the memory of those bad things. They're not going to, in fact, he tells them to remember. But the bad stuff that has happened to you need not be shackles around your feet. That's what it means for God to give you the free will. That he will release you so that you can move forward in joy. He says to rejoice multiple times. It's hard to do that when you're living in life of catastrophe. And he promises to restore. And, and this isn't just fear. I love what, he, what Jesus says in Luke 18. He says it in multiple places. But in Luke 18, 29 and 30, he speaks of all those who, for his sake, are forced to suffer the loss of family, friends, possessions. And he says there's not a single person who's lost a single one of that who won't get back in spades, he doesn't say spades, many times over is what he says, in this life and in the next. Ours is the God who restores, who does not leave people an empty, worn out husk of a person. He replaces the soul. And where one family may, 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 may abandon you, he raises up another. You have a family in God's people. And he promises to make all things new. And he does this in Joel 2 here by making a promise that points towards three distinct things. One, he tells the land to rejoice, to fear not, and to rejoice. Because picture it now, everything is already good. Then he tells the animals, fear not and rejoice. You're in my hands. And then he says, rejoice, O child of Zion. Because he cares all about you. He cares about the land. He cares about the animal life. And he cares about the people. And he goes from least animate to the very end of it. It's poetic, and in chapter 3, you're going to see him address things in that same order. For God is a God of beauty. Fear not. Fear not. Rejoice, O child of Zion. For I send you early rain as your vindication. Early rain is what I'm sending you. Notice this. He hasn't overnight miracled everything back into place. No, they would be tempted to go outside and see nothing but the devastation. Early rain. Meaning, rain comes in its season. But yet, here's an out-of-season rain. It's just rain. But it's the sign. for his people in his land that he will make all things new with early rain. Are you missing the blessing of God because you're looking for something that's not going to come? 
And are you overlooking his problems? God has not promised to miracle your problems away overnight. He has promised to be there and to bring ultimate vindication. And he promises even now to give signs of his ultimate, ultimate restoration. So, what is the purpose of all this, though? Did God just send things to punish, and they repented, so now he's going, okay, I relent, I'm going to back off. That's the cycle. But what's the purpose? And we see that in verses 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never be put to shame. The Hebrew word yada, to know, means experiential knowledge. It's one thing to hear academically that the Lord is here, and the Lord is in our midst. But it's one thing to know, to experience his presence. And this is the great purpose of the trauma they've been through. The great purpose of the trauma that we've all gone through, the purpose of forthcoming traumas, is that we might know that the Lord is in our midst, that he is holy, that he will not tolerate our sin. He disciplines and chastens us, that he might refine and purify us, that we might know that he is the covenant-keeping God and that there is no other God, so stop pursuing him. And the effect, the great effect, of knowing that the Lord is with us is that we will never be put to shame. Think of it for a moment. God will never be found unfaithful. That's the promise. So whatever you're going through, remember God is responsive. Turn to him, and he will listen. He hears, and he sees, and he speaks. He acts in history. Second, remember that the purpose of your trauma, the catastrophes and crises of life, is that we might know that the Lord is with us. And third, remember that whatever happens, he has promised the restoration of all things. This has been promised in the Old and the New Testament. In other words, you can take it to the bank. He's a faithful God who rewards his servants. So bear up under difficulties. Be encouraged in the midst of apparent apocalypse. And see what the Lord will do. Because as this passage tells us multiple times, the Lord has been with us.